get as fast as David and be able to cover the whole Bible in one morning. But uh, we're on like a three-year trajectory. Um, over, over the next few years, we'll be taking chunks of the Bible and, and kind of going through them a book at a time. Uh, we did this back in the fall with a series uh, from the Old Testament. We're sticking in for a few weeks now to go through the Gospels. So uh, for the next few weeks, we'll be looking at Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, kind of windows onto what's the heartbeat of each part of God's Word. How is He loving us by giving us that part of the Word? And uh, so today what we'll do is take a look at what's the common core that all four of these Gospels share. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have distinctive emphases and reasons why each one of them is, is in Scripture and why we need to hear them in a special way. But they also share a lot in common. So today we'll be looking at that common core in every gospel and then over the next few weeks listening, tuning our ears and our hearts to hear the particular rhythms of truth that are in each one. So today we're going to use the first few verses of Mark's gospel as our window into that common heartbeat of these four books of Scripture. So uh, excited to have Kirk Glaze, one of our elders, come and read for us now. Our Scripture reading this morning is from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and 9 through 15. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What is the most pressing need of the human race? What do we need more than anything? If, if we're going to be set free from all the harm that we inflict on ourselves, if we're going to be set free from the harm that we inflict on each other and the harm that is inflicted on us from the outside, what do we need to be set free? What is the most pressing need of the human race? 
sometimes it's fruitful to read a book, watch a movie, listen to a song, and ask that question and say, if all I had in front of me was this one book, this one movie, this one song, how would I answer that question? This week, um, I watched a new movie, and uh, it it contrasted a lot with other movies I've seen in the past. You've seen movies like this. They're kind of the revenge movie, and they all share the same plot. You know, someone has something really wrong done to them, and, and then they adopt this mentality of must take human life in most violent way possible, must destroy, must punish, must avenge, must seek vengeance, and in order to keep the fires of vengeance burning hot, I must isolate myself from all other people. No friends, I'm a loner. Just me and my gun. You know, and whether it's a Western or, you know, a classic Rambo from the 80s or the modern update with Vin Diesel on a skateboard, it's always... It's always the same plot. I have to take life. I have to destroy. I've got to cut myself from all love and all friendship and just isolate myself. And if anybody sacrifices themselves for me along the way, it doesn't change me. Don't let anything touch you. If you watch a movie like that, You walk away with the sense that the greatest need of the human race is to ignore anybody who tries to save us. Ignore anybody who tries to make us whole again. Ignore anybody who tries to rescue us from misery so that we can inflict more misery. But then this week I watched a movie called Hacksaw Ridge. Now I'll warn you, If you don't want to see a very realistic and graphic depiction of what modern warfare is like, you do not want to see this movie. I don't handle blood well at all. And so much of this movie I watch kind of like this, you know. Let me just watch the top third of the screen so I kind of understand what's going on without seeing all the details. Because there are moments where it's really intense. Thankfully, it's based on a true story, so maybe you want to read the story instead of watch this movie. But if you've seen it, you know the story of Desmond Doss, a true story of a young man who was a conscientious objector, had profound spiritual reasons for never wanting to even touch a weapon, let alone use one, to harm another human being. And uh, became a medic in World War II and gave himself to saving life. And so in one particular battle, he almost single-handedly rescued 75 wounded men, most of whom would otherwise have been left to die of their wounds on the battlefield. This is a guy who committed himself to saving life, to facing death so that he could save other people. And as you watch the movie, you see that what he's doing begins to have a transforming effect on everybody around him. That when somebody else faces death to save us from misery, it changes who we are. If you were to watch that movie, and that's the only thing you had in front of you to answer the question, what's the most pressing need of the human race? 
you would say the most pressing need of the human race is to be saved from misery so that we can save others from misery. A gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, is a book of the Bible that answers the question, what is the most pressing need of the human race in a very particular way? It says we need to be saved from misery so that we can take part in God's plan to save other people from misery. And it goes about sending that signal in a very particular way. So what I want us to do this morning is to answer that question. How does a gospel present to us the answer to this pressing need? Um, First of all, I want to start with showing us a picture. So this is a picture uh, that I put my files a long time ago, tried this week to track down where I found it. I can't. I wish I could. Some of you who are better at investigating things online will probably find the answer in the next 30 seconds. But this is a a woodcut uh, carving panel that represents the four Gospels. And so traditionally, each of the Gospels has been represented by a different symbol. They're symbols based on a vision that's in the book of Ezekiel. And a lot of Ezekiel is reflected and mirrored in the book of Revelation. So you'd find descriptions of of these kind of heavenly creatures uh, in Ezekiel and then reflected again in, in Revelation. And somewhere in Christian tradition, those creatures from that vision got... Uh, connected with the four Gospels. And so uh, Matthew's Gospel is represented by the upper left corner, what looks to you and me like an angel, but it's a man with wings, if you read the vision from Ezekiel. Um, A man represents Matthew's Gospel. And then uh, Mark's Gospel is the lion on the, the upper right there. Lion with wings, again, reflected from Ezekiel's vision. And Luke's gospel is this ox here, again with wings. And John's gospel has, in Christian art, been represented by an eagle. And so one thing you would learn by looking at uh, something like this is the idea that all the gospels are different. They're unique. There's something that there's something about Matthew's gospel that's not just like Mark's, and there's something about Mark's that's not just like John. We don't have four eagles or four lions. So Christian art uses these four different symbols to say to us, hey, there are four gospels with independent character and emphases, but what do you notice at the center of the picture? They're all bound together by a cross, and at the center of that cross... You and I might think it's a horse. It's got kind of long legs and a long tail. It's a lamb. Did you know that sheep have long tails if you don't cut them off when they're born? So sometimes in early Christian art, you'll see a really long-tailed sheep that looks like a dog or something. Well, it's it's a lamb with a really long tail. What's that image telling us? We have four Gospels that all tell one Gospel story. There's one heartbeat with Jesus at the center, the lamb who has 
given himself for us to save us from misery and in the process transform us. That common core at the heart of every gospel is this one gospel. Let me take a minute and clarify for those of you who uh, like this kind of detail and those of you who might be learning English. Technically in English, when you see the word gospel with a capital G, it's referring to a book of the Bible, Mark's gospel, Matthew's gospel, Luke's, John's gospel. And when you see the word gospel with a little g, it's referring to the Christian message, the gospel about Jesus. And so if you would look at your worship guide, and as Kurt uh, began to read from Mark, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, well, it's a little g, the beginning of the message. And so big G, book of the Bible, little g, the message about Jesus and what he's done to save us from misery. So what we're symbolizing here and what we're going to say today and over the next few weeks is we have four gospels, four books of the Bible, but they all point us to one gospel, one message about one Savior who has met the most pressing need that all of us have. So how do these four gospels enact that common core? How do they teach us that one gospel. I want to point us to three things. The first one is this. A gospel answers the question, what's the most pressing need of the human race, by telling a true story about what the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has done to restore the world he created. A gospel tells a true story of what God has done to restore the world he created. That word restore is important. It means, it means God created the world to be good, to be a place of life and love and peace. But you don't restore something unless first there's been loss. So God created the world to be full of those things, but the world has become full instead of death and hatred and chaos and conflict. You don't have to make movies about war heroes unless the world has descended into chaos. God has stepped in to restore the world that he made. The world was good. The world is now broken. It is full of wickedness. And God has done something about it. And who is this God? Well, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John... You know immediately this God is the God of the Old Testament. We are, look at Mark's gospel. One verse, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Next verse, it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Boom, we're already back in the Old Testament. Two verses in. What is Mark telling us? You want to know the most pressing need of the human race? It starts right here with this God being a main character in the story, not some other God. Why is that important for us? Well, one reason I'd say is is if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you're going to walk away with this uh, question hanging over your life. Is the God of the Old Testament a key figure in your heart, in your mind, and in your life? If he's not, 
then you have not yet believed the one gospel that is told in the four gospels. If you're spending your days trying to get away from the God of the Old Testament, then you're not hearing the Christian gospel yet. And sometimes we do that because we've been taught wrong. Sometimes we've been taught that the God of the Old Testament is God of wrath and the God of the New Testament is the God of love. Is that what Mark is teaching us? No. He's saying if you want to know the story of Jesus, you've got to start with the God of the Old Testament because the God who said these things to and through Isaiah is the God who sent his son. That one God. Not two gods, a hateful, vengeful God and then a loving God, one God. And so we don't spend our days trying to get away from that God. We don't spend our days trying to get away from the commandments that he has spoken in the Old Testament. Why? Because at the heart of the gospel is this God, one God. Now, I want to mention something here. Uh, A few years ago, I was teaching uh, at my church in St. Louis, and we were talking about the Gospels, and a man in the room said, can we please talk about all those other Gospels that are out there? Now, this was a few years ago when the Da Vinci Code was a little more popular, right? And you read this, this novel, and it says there are 40 other Gospels that have been discovered. And you read the, you know, around Easter time, National Geographic is going to do a special about the lost Gospels. Or you're going to see that Bart Ehrman or Elaine Pagels, uh, professors at prominent universities, have published books about all these hidden Gospel sources that have been discovered. And this, this man, he asked the question, if I'm missing out on something I need to know to be a faithful follower of Jesus, please tell me. All right, this is not a man interested in an academic conversation. He wasn't interested in a theoretical topic. He said, look, there are smart people out there saying there are more than four gospels. And, and do I need to know about that? Well, here's what I want to tell you. Um, about 30 different written sources that modern scholars describe as gospels have been discovered. But if you took one of them and you sat down and you read it and you said, what is the most pressing need of the human race? Based on just reading that gospel, you would come up with a radically different answer than when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. One of those Gospels is uh, called the Gospel of Thomas. And the Gospel of Thomas is uh, one of the most thorough ancient uh, documents we've discovered uh, from uh, probably dates to about the third century, maybe the late second century. It refers to the Old Testament only eight times. The God of the Old Testament is not a main character in that gospel. And so you start to ask the question, is it really a gospel? If it's not trying to get us in sync with this God. Uh, At a town in Egypt called Nag Hammadi, 
many ancient scrolls were discovered, again, dating to the late second, maybe third, uh, fourth centuries. And you go through four documents from all of those that are referred to by scholars as gospels. And you would find in those four documents only three references to the prophets from the Old Testament. Are those really gospels? Are they telling the same story? I think the answer is no. I mean, with Mark, we're, we're the second verse in and already we're back at Isaiah, right? Mark is tripping over himself, trying to get us in touch with the God of the Old Testament through Jesus, the Son of God. These other documents aren't like that. So please don't assume that everything that's called the gospel really deserves that title. Hey, I grew up in a small town in South Carolina, so here's how we said it. Just because it's in the oven don't mean it's a biscuit. (laughs) Now, I know I'm in Atlanta, so I can't talk like that around more sophisticated folks, right? But just because somebody's calling it a gospel, that doesn't mean it's telling the same story about the same God it's not even addressing the same issue. We'll talk about that a little bit later. How else do our Gospels work? So Gospels going to answer the question, what's the most pressing need of the human race? Number one, by telling us a story about the God of the Old Testament and what he is doing to redeem the world he created. But a Gospel whether it's Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, is also going to tell a true story about what Jesus has done to restore life and love and peace to his Father's world. Well, wait a minute, which is it? Is a gospel that tells what, a book that tells what God has done or a book that tells what Jesus has done? And the answer is yes. Yes, in these four gospels, the line between the Father and the Son gets blurred. For instance, this is the way it happens in these verses from Mark. Verse 15, The time has come, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Well, what was Jesus doing? The verse before tells us. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news or gospel of God. So Mark's telling us the story of how Jesus preached the gospel of God. But back in verse 1, Mark said, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Was the gospel about God or is it about Jesus Christ? Well, the line gets blurred because Jesus stands in a unique relationship to God. Remember the words that Mark records. As Jesus is baptized, a voice comes from heaven And the father says, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. There is peace and harmony between God the father and God the son. There is not conflict and alienation and rebellion and isolation. And Jesus has come to restore us to that kind of relationship with his father. To bring life and peace and love back into the Father's good world. And he can do that because he is uniquely the Son of God. Now, if you were to believe, uh, read one of the uh, documents called the Gospel of Judas, you would find 
that, that Christ is the son of Adam and Eve. It's not telling a story about the Son of God. So I'm not sure that it's really intellectually honest for us to use the same label, gospel, to describe that kind of document as we would use to describe the documents that are in the New Testament. And I hope I'm not just being biased because I'm a follower of Jesus. I hope I'm really using my mind clearly and well and to say, is it a helpful use of the English language? for us to expand this term gospel until it becomes so broad that it applies to a document that says, no, Jesus isn't the Son of God. He's the Son of human beings, Adam and Eve. Or, for example, the gospel of uh, Mary Magdalene, another one of these sources discovered in Egypt at Nag Hammadi, um, would tell us that that the creator God is evil because matter is evil. And so the God of the Old Testament must be wicked because he created a physical world. So Jesus has come to free us from this physical world and put us in touch with the real God, not the Old Testament creator God. Again, I'm going to ask the question, is it intellectually honest to use the same title to describe that kind of story and to describe the story told in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say the most pressing need of the human race is to have the God who made everything step into our world and experience the misery that we live in and redeem us from it. These other Gospels really preach a, a message called Gnosticism. Gnosis is the Greek, one of the Greek words for knowledge. So at the heart of Gnosticism is this sense that what you need is just more knowledge. You don't need somebody to come rescue you. You need somebody who knows the right stuff to come tell you the right stuff. Because your biggest problem is you don't know the right stuff. And if you just knew yourself you would be set free. That's a very different gospel. That's a very different analysis of what's most wrong with me. If I look into the heart of who I am, you know what I find there? I find this great mixture of love and hatred. I find this great mixture of warmth toward God and coldness toward Him. I find this great mixture of chaos and longing for peace, I will not find the answer in here. I need somebody from outside to come in to step into the chaos and rescue me from it. Again, very different kind of message in these other documents. What does that mean for you and for me? Well, it means if you believe that Jesus is just a man... Even if you believe he was a very, very good man, you have not yet believed the one gospel that is recorded and urged on us through the four gospels. Right? Jesus is not just a great human hero. He is not just a wonderful teacher who did a better job of keeping his own standards than most people do. 
He's not just a great example when you need somebody to rah-rah give you a pep talk. He's the son of God who existed outside the chaos of our world and through love alone stepped into this world and laid down his life to drag us bloody and wounded out of the misery so that we could be restored to peace and life and love again. Do you believe in that Jesus? I didn't always believe in that Jesus. God in his mercy opened my eyes to see what my great need really is. I don't just need a good teacher to tell me how to be good. I'm the kind of person, I realize this about myself now, you can tell me how to be good all you want, I'm not going to do it. You want me to be good? You're going to have to kill me and start all over again. And that's exactly what the gospel says. That somebody has to become a man, put on flesh and blood, and die, and then be resurrected to new life. To put right what's wrong with me, you got to kill me and start all over again. But I wouldn't survive the process so Jesus comes and steps into my place, lays down his life for me, takes up new life, and then shares it with me. Wow. That's the gospel. That's that one story at the heart of all of our gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So, how does the gospel work? It's going to tell us a story about what God has done to restore the world he's made. It's going to tell us a story about what Jesus has done to restore life and love and peace to his Father's world. And it's going to tell us this story in a way that finds its center point in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Look at what Mark says, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ. You know what that is an invitation to do? Keep reading. Keep reading. This is just the beginning. Read all the way to the end. And what will you find at the end of this gospel? The story of how Jesus died and rose again. Of how he experienced the misery. And then God rescued him from the misery. And he shared with us the rescue that God gave him. That's the gospel. And what happens to us when we hear that gospel, when we begin to believe it, it changes everything about who we are. If you read the story or watch the movie of Hacksaw Ridge, you'll encounter the captain of the unit to which our hero, uh, Private Doss, was assigned. And that captain at the beginning of the movie makes it very clear that he believes that Doss is a coward and that he, the captain, is the brave one. You're the fool and I'm the wise one. By the end of the movie, his perspective has totally changed. He begins to see. You're the only brave one on the field. You're braver than the rest of us put together. I'm not the man I thought I was. And you are so much greater than I thought you were. 
You know what we call that in the Bible? Repentance. Jesus goes out and preaches. Repent and believe the good news. What does repentance mean? It means standing before Jesus and saying, Jesus, I am not as good as I once thought I was. And you are far better than I ever imagined you to be. Change me. That's repentance. Jesus says, repent and believe this good news. That the God who made the world stepped into the misery to redeem us from it. Have you stood before Jesus and said that to him? I am not as good as I think I am. And you are the only one who can save me from this misery. That's the gospel at the heart of all of our gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. When you know that gospel and you know that kind of saving love that would enter all the misery of this life in order to redeem us from it and restore God's good world, then you understand what it is to be transformed by knowing Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We looked at a picture earlier picture representing four gospels and and the one gospel with Jesus as the lamb why a lamb because in the old testament at the passover meal god's people put a lamb to death as god's people were held in slavery in egypt they lived in a world full of misery and chaos And they longed for something better. And God came to deliver them. And he sent an angel to judge all those who were enslaving his people. And he said to his people, many many are going to be put to death tonight. The only way for you to be spared is for a lamb to die. And you paint his blood over your doorway. And you will be spared. And so the lamb becomes a symbol of someone else dying so that we don't have to. It becomes a symbol of God stepping in and saying, here is the way to be kept safe from death, to be delivered from slavery, to be free from all the misery. And Jesus celebrated a final supper with his followers, a Passover meal. And at that meal, a lamb would have been served. And they would eat the lamb's flesh and remember the way the Father had delivered them. But during that meal, Jesus instead took bread. And he broke the bread. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. It's not the lamb who's going to save us. I am the one who has come to fulfill what the lamb always symbolized. 
And in the same way, Scripture says that after the meal, Jesus took a cup, a cup full of wine, rich red color that looks like blood. And he said, this cup is a new covenant, a love relationship sealed in a solemn way, a new covenant sealed with my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of many. Jesus said, drink from it, all of you. And do this in remembrance of me. Here's another picture. Jesus loves us so much. He wants us to hear the gospel in another way. Not only by reading Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. He wants us to hear the gospel when you chew the bread and the sound it makes in your mouth. He wants you to know that the reality of his love for you is just like that. It's not fake. It's not pretend. It's something you can experience in a very real way. So he's going to use all our senses, sight, taste, touch, smell, to say, I am the only way you can be delivered from all this misery. We don't say that at in town because we're mean and nasty and we want to mistreat or misjudge other religions. We say that because we believe that Jesus is the only truly wise person that ever lived on this planet. And that if we say anything different than what he said, then we are being foolish and we are encouraging you to believe foolishness. We don't want to do that. So if you have given your heart and life to Jesus, you're following him as the source of wisdom and joy and every good thing, then we invite you to come to his table and do what he said, eat and drink in remembrance of him. You can't remember someone you haven't known yet. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you're not a believer in this gospel, you aren't a Christian, then just let these things pass as they come by you. Don't participate time for you to reflect on the things you've heard today and on the things you'll see. The love of a Savior who would lay down his life so that we could be saved, rescued, redeemed from all this misery. I'll take a moment to pray for us and let me invite the folks to come forward who are going to pass out our um, bread and wine. Lord Jesus, thank you for your great gift of love for us, would you meet with us now and uh, in a powerful way, more powerful than any of us have ever experienced before. Lord, next week is not going to be the day we need you. We need you right now. Tomorrow is not the day we look forward to when you would show up in our lives in a powerful way. We hunger for that right now. In this moment, those of us who follow you, who are believers in you, would would we experience your love more powerfully than ever. Those of us who are not yet your followers, will we begin to see the great depths of truth about you and your love for us? We pray these things in your name.